morning again. Excited to be here with you. Uh, have you ever been sick? And I don't mean like, I got the sniffles. I mean like full-on body in rebellion sick. Like you're shivering, you're cold, and so you're just kind of shaking and you can't seem to stop shaking. Maybe you got like a stomach bug or food poisoning and you're getting rid of everything. Have you ever just been so sick that you, you, you look at yourself in the mirror, you feel like death, you look like death, your friends and family agree that you look like death, and you're like, ah. But at the same time, your body's doing what it's supposed to do. The fever is supposed to kill infection. The, the, the stuff is supposed to get rid of stuff. You know, it, it's all working the way that it's supposed to, but it feels like you're dying. And at the end of it, you're like, you're like Mark Twain, you're like, the reports of my death were greatly exaggerated. You know, you come out of it with this like excitement and joy, joy of life, right? I think sometimes we look at the church and we think she's sick. And we think she's on her deathbed. We look and we see shaking of materialism, uh, the fever of, of idolatry. We look and see racism. We look and see... Uh, abuse, we look and see scandal, we look and see shrinking numbers, and we think the church isn't just sick, but dying. But dying. Well, today we're going to talk about the church as a body. And what I want us to talk about today is I want us to talk about how the church is not dying, that the reports of the church's death are greatly exaggerated. And that the body of Christ is designed to fight infection and that actually those infections, just like when we get infections and we come out on the other side, we are stronger. Today we're going to talk about things that God has given his body, the body of Christ, so that we might not just fight infection but come out stronger on the other side. We're, we're walking through a series of We Are the Church. This week we are the body. And the reason why we're doing this is because we're celebrating our 80th anniversary next month. In October, I can't believe October is already here. But we're celebrating our 80th anniversary, so we're going to have a series of messages where Jeff is going to be preaching in different venues and kind of streaming into other ones, and it's going to be awesome for the unity of our, of our congregation, of our body of Christ, because we are sort of divided in different venues, and that can make us focus on one, one area of the church when much, at Park Cities we're much broader and bigger than that. And so it's going to be good, good for us. We're also going to have lunch on the lawn in October. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a good season to talk about this. So today we're in Ephesians 4, talking about the body of Christ. We're in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, but we're going to reach back and grab a couple other passages as well. And I want us to see that we are equipped, we're unified, and we're maturing. So the first thing is, we are a body equipped. We are a body equipped. So when your body is sick, your body does this nifty little thing. It makes these things called antibodies. Now, I am not a doctor, but I did take sixth grade health. And I know that what antibodies do is they kind of go around pathogens and infections and sort of neutralize them, right? They're made by your blood. They're produced by plasma, by blood cells in your body uh, to neutralize infections. And even though I kind of talked about the church and some of the ailments that the church has, the sickness that the church gets occasionally, sometimes somewhat seemingly chronically, there are times when she does pick up an affection, both in the early church, the ancient church, the medieval church, the Reformation church, to the modern church, she does tend to get infections. And we mentioned a few of them. There's conformity with culture. 
There's a desire sometimes not to purge ourselves of sin in our midst that we know is there. There's abuse, there's influence, there's there's, uh, lust of power, there's sexual abuse. There's all sorts of things that the church struggles with and goes through seasons where she struggles with it. But God told the church in Ephesus, and he's telling the church today, that he's provided a means to fight this infection. And one of the things that he's done is he's given her people. He's given her people. Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So we're joining Paul. This is the middle of a larger discussion about the unity of the body of Christ. And Paul is saying that when Jesus Christ died, when he was crucified, when he was buried, when he was resurrected, after 40 days of teaching, he actually ascended into heaven. And when he ascended, he actually gave gifts. Look at verse 8. It says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So when uh, Jesus Christ ascended, like a triumphant general re-entering his city as a conquering hero, he has all this spoil of war, and he gives that spoil of war out to his victorious army, me and you. He gives it to us. And so he gives us gifts, and one of the gifts that he gives us is he gives us gifted people. So your blood, when you're sick, produces antibodies to fight infection, Jesus' blood gives us gifted people to fight infection in the body of Christ. The blood of Christ provides antibodies important for the church. And these antibodies are these five, uh, maybe sometimes four, uh, individuals listed here. Now the tendency is to view these simply as gifts. And I think that's just a fine and fair interpretation. But I don't think you can uh, extract the gift from the gifted. The gift from the person. These are gifted people. Gifted people. And so Christ has given the church these five roles. He's given apostles to fight off the infection of stagnation and self-absorption. Because apostles are always saying, we need to go where, where the gospel's not been heard before. We need to go where the gospel's not been preached. We need to go in, and preach it in ways that it's never been done before. Those are your apostles. Again, I don't think these are necessarily offices. I think these are people. You have prophets to fight off the infection of complacency and moral compromise. Prophets are people that come to you and say, hey, we've let this sin in our lives go on way too long. It's time to, that's not in accordance with what God wants us to do. That's not what scripture says. Challenging everybody to lead a life worthy of their calling. That's what prophets are for, to fight that infection. We tend to make peace treaties with sin. And prophets say, no, 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 we can't do that. Evangelists. Fight off the infection of a works-based righteousness and tribalism. Because evangelists are always like, hey, I don't think they know the gospel. Let's go over there. Hey, let's preach the gospel everywhere. Hey, you, you, you're not in a church. You should come with me to this church. Evangelists are like hype men. They're just excited. They want everybody to come and hear the gospel. Come and hear the good news. Teachers, fight off the infection of heresy, syncretism, and the false gospel. It has a tendency to infect the church. Teachers come in and say, no, 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 no. That is not what Christianity is. No, 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 that's not orthodox. I I don't care if it's cool. I don't care if it's modern. I don't care if it's relevant. I don't care if it's how we've always done it. That is not in line with the gospel. And teachers call us back to who we are. Pastors, shepherds, fight off the infection of despair, disillusionment, and burnout. Because let's be honest, being a Christian is hard. Following Jesus is hard. It's a narrow gate, and it's narrow for a reason. We need pastors, we need shepherds to help us not only find the gate, but to help us have the courage to keep walking, to keep going. 
So we have all these different gifts. And, and I think that these people are probably going to wind up in the church to be leaders of some kind. These are your vocational pastors. These are your, your clergy. These are your deacons, your elders. Uh, these are your people who are probably connect group teachers, leading Bible studies. They're taking on a more active and, and, and somewhat visual or official role in the church of leadership. So what about you? What about you sitting there and thinking, well, what about me, Travis? What, what's my gift? Where do I want it? Well, we have strength. We have strength in diversity. Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So Jesus has given us these five people, these five uh, individuals, gifted categories of people, so that the rest of the body of Christ might learn what their gifts are, might be equipped, and then might use their gifts so that working together, almost like two gears kind of turning each other, we might build up the body of Christ, making her stronger, bigger, beautiful, more beautiful than she's ever been. You need to learn what your gift is. You need to learn how to use your gift, taught in accordance with how to use it biblically and in love. And that's the role of these leaders. The, other, the five categories listed here are to teach you how to use your gifts. And this shows an incredible amount of diversity within a unified body, right? There are different ways to fight the infection. These, these antibodies, these individuals come in to fight the infection, and in the course of doing so, the body becomes stronger, and you begin to serve the church. So what kind of gifts are there? Well, I think there's a lot of different kinds of gifts. I don't think any one list in the Bible is exhaustive. I don't think the Bible even lists all of them. There's things like service, exhortation, generosity. There's things like hospitality. Those are things that are listed. Some things that I think that are gifts that aren't listed Music is probably a gift. It's essential for us building up the body of Christ in modern day America. Seems to be a gift, right? It's used to build up the body of Christ. I think technical services, microphones and screens and all that stuff, that's a part of the church win. People that are gifted in that way and they build up the body of Christ. Boyd Hunt says that spiritual gifts are God's empowering his people through the Holy Spirit for kingdom life and service, enabling them in attitude and action to live and minister in a manner which glorifies Christ. So each of us have been given a gift when we, from the Holy Spirit when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. So we all know that we're sinners. We all have this condition where we cannot please God. We, we can't make ourselves right with him. And so God did not leave us in that state, but instead he sends his son to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins. And when he resurrects, he offers life to all who will believe in him. So if you put your faith and trust that your hope for a right relationship with God, your hope for an eternal life, your hope for a life of significance, if you're putting all of that in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you have faith in Christ. You're a believer. And when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of your heart, but he doesn't come empty-handed. He brings you at least one spiritual gift, maybe more. Maybe more. And so your gift, what's your gift for? It's not for you. Your gift, you might be a gifted teacher, but your gift isn't so that you are a better teacher at school. Your gift is so that you are a better teacher of God's people. Now, can he use that gift while you're at school? Sure. Your gift is not so that you're a better businessman. Your gift is not so you're better an entrepreneur, not to line your pockets. Your gift is for the building up of the body of Christ. It's for the glorification of Jesus Christ. It's so that your brothers and sisters grow. So how do you know when you're using your gift? You know when the people around you are following Jesus more closely because you're using your gift. You know when Christ is glorified, when people worship Christ because of your gift. You know when you are growing in your faith, that's when you know you're using your gift. So how do you find out what your gift is? 
That's become really popular over the last 60 years to take an inventory. You take a test and it spits out a result. If you're really smart, you can actually make the gift say anything you want. I can have the gift of administration, which I do not have the gift of administration. But I can make a test say that if I know what I'm doing. I think a far better way to learn your spiritual gift is to ask the people around you. That's why it's important to be in community. The body of Christ coming around you saying, hey, you know what? You're really good at this. You should do this. Or if I were to come to my friends and say, I think my spiritual gift is administration, they would lovingly pull me aside and slap me (laughs) because it's not. You have people around you that affirm you and push you into what that gift is. Also, trial and error. There's a need in the church. There's you. Go try and fill it. Maybe it'll be a pie in your face. Absolutely could be. But you need to at least try. It's not a science. We've got to remove the scientific element from it. It's not a science. It's not input answers and get a response. Spiritual gift inventories are fine. If you want confirmation, do that. But first, you need to talk to people around you. Talk to people around you. So on the one hand, you have these individuals, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And then you have the rest of the body of of Christ. And they're working together to grow up the body of Christ and to help fight these infections that seem to penetrate into, into the body, to make us ill. So where do you belong? Where do you need to serve? Are you a hand? Are you a finger bone? Are you an eyeball? Or are you just an appendix? Nobody knows what you're here for. Just kind of hanging out. Your use has been long lost to eternity. And we're all just kind of waiting for you to blow up and do a lot of damage. I can't lay claim to that joke. I read it somewhere. Jeff told it to me. But it's true. Like some of us just sit there like an appendix being like, y'all don't mind me. I'm going to hurt. Give me about 20 years and I'm going to hurt you real bad. Don't be an appendix. Be useful. Can you serve our children, instructing and shepherding them? I came home uh, this week from work and my daughter, she's three. I was like, hey, what are you doing? She's, She's playing. I didn't talk to her quite like that. What are you doing? I was like, hey, what are you doing? She was playing We Worship. She had all of her stuffed animals, and she was leading them through We Worship, which is adorable. Yes, you can awe. It's precious. <laughs> but what's really amazing is that, like, that matters to her because people take interest in a three-year-old girl. She's not sophisticated doctrinally at all, but she loves We Worship, and that makes a difference, and it makes a difference to me. It encourages me. I love our church even more because of it. Can you serve in Vickery Meadows? You don't have to go overseas. You should, but you don't have to. You can go to Vickery Meadows. There's all different kinds of nationalities where you can minister to and take the gospel to them. Can you serve in our parking ministry? People like to drive cars in Dallas, and they need a place to put it so they can come and work and worship here. Help them find a spot to put their car. That is a great act of service. Might be modern day washing your feet, for all we know. What's your place? Where can you serve? So we have diversity. We've been equipped diversely, and so we're strong. But we're also unified. We're a body unified. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So we're a diverse body, but we're also unified. Travis, that seems mutually exclusive. Well, it's not. Think about your body. Think about the way that your body looks. Your body has fingers and toes, and fingers and toes kind of look the same. They look like they belong together. But then think of like your stomach. It doesn't really look like other things. Talking about like inside, the organ itself. Eyeballs look kind of strange. 
There's different things that look different. They don't necessarily look like they belong to the body, but all these different parts that do different things work together to build up unity. They work together towards a common goal, a common purpose, which is basically keeping this alive, keeping this going, fighting off affection, contributing uh, to health and unity within the body. And so if one part of the body gets sick, what happens? The whole body is sick. My finger doesn't get leprosy and then the rest of me is just fine. It's like, oh, well, it's okay. No, the whole body is sick. Now, sometimes you can take things away, you can remove things, but that's not even an optimal solution. Now, you might think to yourself, Travis, in verse 13, it says we need to attain unity. It, it, it seems like it's not something we have. And you are reading that somewhat correctly. Unity is something we have, and it's also something we work for. Imagine that somebody gave you $100 in an investment account and said, hey, I want you to take this and invest it. You would have an investment account. And $100 is nice, but it maybe isn't as large as an investment account as you might want. So you work to build up the investment account by putting more money into it, by putting more resources, by diversifying your your portfolio so that you can have a greater sense of investment. That is having an investment account, but maintaining it and building it up. There is having unity, but you also maintain and you build it up. It's significant and important. We need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's Ephesians 4.3. So what I want us to do, and and we don't really talk about this a lot, is why unity is important. And when we talk about why unity is important, we also need to talk about how we maintain unity. So that's what we're going to spend the the bulk of our time doing this morning. And we don't talk about unity a lot. So I want you to know that as I walk through this, I'm probably going to maybe meander to some places that you're a little sensitive. And that's okay for the sake of unity. So why is unity important? Let's look at verse 4 of chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So this is reason number one why it's important that we show our unity, why we grow in unity. It's because it reflects the Trinitarian nature of our God. Notice that in those uh, three verses, four verses, three verses, Every member, every person of the Trinity is mentioned. Starts with the Spirit, one Lord, who is often Lord in the New Testament, is often a reference to Jesus Christ, and then one God and Father overall. The entire Trinity is mentioned there. And the Trinity reflects, or we reflect as the church, we reflect the Trinity. The Trinity is, is three persons, co-equal, and made of the same, or are the same substance. They are the same substance. But there's diversity within the Trinity. Even though it's unified, he's unified, God is unified, there's diversity. Because the Father has certain things that he does within creation and redemption. The Son has certain things that he does within creation and redemption. And the Spirit has certain things that he does in creation and redemption. And that's diversity within a unified Trinity. And it's perfect love. The Godhead is perfectly loving towards one another. The Son submits to the Father, the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. So when we are unified in our diversity, we show the world this is who our God is. You want to see what our God is like? Look at the body of Christ. So it reflects the Trinitarian nature of our God. It also, unity also, as we walk through the ones in here, it's important for us to look at each one, what they do. So he says in verse 4, there's one body and one spirit. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility that's broken down between Jews and Gentiles. And you can't find a much more diverse group of people than Jews and Gentiles. Monotheists versus polytheists. Sexually uh, uh, moderate, moderate uh, versus sexually licentious group of people. 
the chosen people versus the rejected people. There's a lot of things to oppose one another there, but God brings them together. And if God can bring so diverse a people together into one body, what else might he do? He can bring together people of different race, different nationality, Arabs, Africans, Asians, Westerners, white, black, Hispanic, all in the body of Christ, even Canadians, even Canadians. Men, women, children, I love Canada, you're fine. Men, women, children, all of them together under one, in one body. The Spirit of God unites us all. So there's no room for racial divide in the church, none. There's also no room for sexism in the church, right? There's no longer Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female. We purge things like greed and sexual immorality from our midst. We go after it really hard, and that's good. We have accountability groups for things like that, and that's great. But do we need an accountability group to deal with racism? Do we need accountability groups to deal with sexism? Do we take it that seriously? I think we should. So we have one spirit, because when we are unified in our diversity, we reflect the unity of the spirit. One hope. We have one hope, verse four. One body, one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We have one hope as believers in Jesus Christ. And every Christian, every Orthodox Christian, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Catholic, they hold to one hope, and it is this. If somebody asks you, what's the hope of Christianity? It is this, that we would have resurrected bodies. When Christ returns, we would have a body like his. Our hope is not that we go dwell in a, in a, in a spirit form in heaven forever and ever. That's not the hope of the Christian. The hope of the Christian is that Jesus Christ would return and that the dead in Christ, their bodies would raise, souls would be reunited with bodies, and those of us who are not dead yet would be transformed and have glorified bodies just like Christ, and we would live in a new heaven and a new earth. That is our hope. We have one hope, and that is it. And the next one, one Lord, is tied to that hope. We have one Lord. What does it mean by that? Jesus Christ is the only way, the only way to access that hope. We have one mediator. Daniel prayed that. We have one mediator of our faith, of the new covenant. It is through Jesus Christ. There are no other options. And that shows unity in the body. We are all agreeing together that that is one way. One way. We also have one faith. Now, one faith is not necessarily one acceptance of Christ, like, like believing in Jesus. One faith is the entire encompassing of the core doctrines of the faith that we hold on to. There are some doctrines that are not core and there's some that are. Here are the core doctrines. In order to be an orthodox Christian, this is what you hold to. God is creator. I don't care how you get there, but God had better started the party. Evolution, literal seven-day creation, again, I don't care. I care that you believe that God is the one who started all this. Trinitarian, God exists co-eternally, three persons, one substance, co-equal in holiness and power. Got to hold to the Trinity. Original sin, sin is not a behavior, I'm just a bad person. No, 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 no. You're a broken, you're corrupt. You were born this way. You didn't do any, you did things wrong, yes, but you did things wrong because you have a condition. You need to hold to the, the belief in the virgin birth. Why is the virgin birth so important? It is God's way of getting around original sin for Christ. Christ is sinless, 
And because he is born of a virgin, he is not born into original sin. That's why the virgin birth is important. So we hold to the virgin birth. Jesus is the son of God. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. Otherwise, his sacrifice is not acceptable. We hold to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. Everybody holds to this. Even if, if, if in some denominations it seems to be diluted, our Catholic brothers and sisters sometimes do a little stuff with this that can be difficult to discern. Salvation by grace through faith, it's important to hold on to. Jesus is coming back physically. We talked about this. The Bible is inspired by God. Those are core doctrines that we hold on to. So we have one faith. We also have one baptism. You just saw, baptism is important. I tell people this. It's a little strange, right, that we go swimming as a part of our worship services. But it's important because it's not just swimming. It is a public profession of faith. We have one baptism. So when we get baptized, we're proclaiming the unity of the body of Christ. So when you choose not to get baptized, when you hold off being baptized, despite the fact that you're a believer, you are embracing disunity over unity. You're rejecting the unity of the body of Christ in favor of disunity. Get baptized. Same with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to proclaim our unity in Christ because everybody takes the Lord's Supper. Every denomination takes the Lord's Supper. Think about it. Greek Orthodox, Catholic, Presbyterian, Southern Baptist, Northern Baptist, they all do it. It's a unifying element. We have different things that we think it means, yeah. But everybody takes bread in the cup. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. We have one baptism. We also have one father. Verse 6, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We're all human beings created by God. That is unifying. We're all people. We are all sinners saved by grace. We're all sinners in need of a savior. So that's why unity is important. How do we maintain and pursue unity? Well, one, we need to have humility. Look at verse one. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So how do we maintain and pursue unity? First, we be humble. We recognize that we're equal at the foot of the cross. I'm not better than anybody. I'm no worse than anybody. I don't have pretension when I walk into the body of Christ thinking I'm better than other people. I don't have apprehension thinking I'm worse. I have humility. I have gentleness. Gentleness is not being weak. Jesus wasn't weak. He was gentle. Gentleness is even though you have the ability to work out something for your good or for your advantage, you choose not to do it so that you can work the advantage of somebody else. That's gentleness. Weakness is you don't have the ability. Jesus was gentle. Jesus is gentle. Gentleness is not retaliating, even though you can. It's letting go of resentment, malice, and anger. Patience. Patience means a lot of things in Scripture. In this context, it probably means bearing with a body of believers through a difficult time. So not one-on-one, but every church gets sick, right? Every church has a hard time. Every church goes through rough seasons. We've been around for 80 years. We've had hard times. But we have endured And patience is a call to endure in the body of Christ, not just to leave and find another church the moment things get difficult. And then there's love. Despite conflict, disagreement, we work together to resolve those conflicts. We work together. And the things that disrupt unity are things you can find in other passages. Galatians 5 talks about enmity, strife, jealousy, fits, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. 1 Corinthians 11, overemphasizing socioeconomic status. 
And in Philippians 4, disagreements between individuals can contribute to division. So we're a body diverse, absolutely. And that makes us strong. We're equipped because of our diversity, but we're also unified in the spirit of God, and we're working to build into that unity. And all of this is a process, a process that we call maturity. We're a body maturing. So as a person's body physically matures, some cool things happen. One, the things that like, were really life-threatening to me as a baby aren't as much. So my daughter, when she was five weeks old, she was hospitalized for, for a little while because she got a cold. She didn't have an immune system yet. I have not been hospitalized for a cold as an adult man. Because my body is stronger, it's able to fight off infection. As the church grows and matures, she is better able to fight off infections that has beset her in the past. She's growing, right? We don't trip over some of the same things that we used to trip over in the past, right? But also as a person's body matures, things can become awkward, right? You all knew that kid in sixth grade who grew like seven inches overnight and still played on your basketball team and you're like, oh my gosh, you can dunk a basketball, and, and this isn't even fair. But he was also the most awkward kid in school. Because mentally and emotionally, maybe he hadn't grown to match his height, to match his stature. Sometimes the church's physical maturity outstrips her spiritual and emotional maturity. So sometimes we get bigger than we're able to handle. Sometimes we get more power and influence than we're spiritually ready to handle. Things like the Crusades take place because we got a lot of power and influence, but not the spiritual maturity to go with it. The 30 Years' War. Protestants, Catholics fighting for 30 years in Europe. American slavery, power and influence that didn't equate to spiritual maturity. It's a process. She's grown, but there's been awkward parts. And so Paul tells us that she's maturing, she's growing up. So what is she growing up into? Look at verse 13. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So as we grow, one, we understand more and more what it is to be the body of Christ. So one of the cool things about infections, your body is immune to them after you get them, right? So heresies in the church that have broken in, we don't really argue about as much anymore because we've taken care of it. We don't really argue about Trinitarianism anymore. Why? Because we solved that in like 400 AD, for the most part. Some people still argue about it. It's fine. You're wrong. We've moved on past that. We tackle other issues now. Because we're learning more about who Christ is and how he works. And when heresy challenges, you've got a guy named Arius coming in and saying, I don't think that Jesus was necessarily uh, co-eternal with God. And the church is like, time out, do we think that? No, we don't. And you're able to, to solidify your position, solidify and understand what it is we actually believe. So heresy, challenges like that aren't actually a bad thing. They're good things. They help us clarify what we think and believe. So infections make us stronger to some extent. Sometimes they're super destructive if they're not handled well. So we're growing more about what it means to follow Christ, but also we're growing up, notice it says, to the stature, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means we're growing up into becoming like Christ as a corporate body. Everywhere we go, we are proclaiming the gospel. Everywhere we go, the light is shining forth. The corporate body is becoming more and more like Christ. So the things you see Jesus doing in the gospels, you should see the body of Christ corporately doing. So everywhere we go, there's healing, 
found within the body. There's wholeness and redemption being proclaimed because that's what Jesus did. The world around us, wherever the church goes, should look more like the kingdom and less like the world. The darkness gets pushed back and it's pushed back because the light is emanating forth from the body of Christ as she grows and matures. New life, salvation, righteousness, healing begin to take root. Mercy, hope, justice, righteousness, healing, all these things take place as the unified body matures and grows up into everything that she's supposed to be. John 14, 12, Jesus says, greater works than these you will do. Greater works than my works you will do. I don't think we expect that of ourselves. We don't expect God to do that through that. Us, perhaps, is a better way to say that. And all this culminates when Christ returns, when his bride is made ready. I think one of the reasons why Jesus Christ has not yet returned is that we are not of a marriageable age yet. We're not old enough to get married yet. We're not mature enough for marriage. We're not, we would not be equally yoked with our Lord yet. But I think there's coming a day when Christ returns when we will be adorned in the righteousness of, our, of, of, our, of faith and Christ and we'll be ready. We will be ready. Bedecked in love and bedazzled in love and ready to receive our groom. Again, that doesn't mean we will be perfect. I don't think we will be perfect. But I do think we have some growing up to do. And if that's what maturity looks like, what does immaturity look like? Look at verse 14. So there may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Immaturity looks directionless. It looks unstable. We no longer are a church on mission. Instead, we're a church focused on ourselves and our needs. We're indecisive. We don't speak out against the evils of the world. We don't speak out for the gospel. We don't seek to purge sin from our midst. Instead, we make those peace treaties. We make ceasefires with our sin. We're easily manipulated. We think just because somebody has a letter next to their name, we should vote for them because we're evangelical. Brothers and sisters, do not let politicians manipulate you because you are in a certain category of believer. That doesn't mean that they have your best interests in mind. We buy products or boycott products because somebody has a Jesus fish or doesn't have a Jesus fish. Don't be manipulated. That's immaturity. Paul tells us how to lay this aside. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We speak the truth in love. That's how we grow up. Now, this doesn't mean, hey, honey, your hair looks real rough. I'm just speaking the truth in love so you don't make that mistake again. That's not speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is me coming to you or you coming to me and being like, what you are doing right now is divisive. You are not pursuing humility. You're not pursuing gentleness. You're not pursuing it lovingly, and you're not pursuing it patiently. That is speaking the truth in love. And then coming along, not just challenging me, but seeking me to teach me how I might do what I'm trying to do in a more positive way or how to leave behind what I'm doing that is so divisive. And when this happens, when you get a part of your body that doesn't work, say you break your arm and it's laid up for a while, what happens? You take time, you lovingly take care of it, you're tender with it, you're careful how you wash it, and then sometimes you go to rehabilitation to make sure it works again properly, to get your full range of motion back. When we have brothers and sisters that we need to challenge... We need to lovingly take care of them and then walk them through spiritual kind of rehabilitation. Let me show you how to do this in a better way. Trust me, I've made the same mistake. Let me walk you through it differently. And that's speaking the truth in love so that we would all grow up into the body of Christ. 
we are a body that sometimes gets sick. You're absolutely right. And sometimes the church looks like she's dying. But the reports of our death are greatly exaggerated. She is growing. She is unified. She is strong. She's maturing. And every day she's getting stronger and stronger because the Spirit of God is working in her midst and in the parts, in you and in me. And one day when our groom returns, we'll be ready. So let's pray for that day. Let's pray that he would work. Let's pray together. Father God, we are grateful to you because you have made a way for us to have a relationship with you, to be a part of this beautiful body of Christ. That yeah, sometimes she gets sick, but Lord, you have said that nothing will overcome her. And so Lord God, I pray that we would have be faithful to purge illness from our midst, no matter what it might look like, whether it's in our own hearts, whether it's in the lives of the corporate body, I pray that we would reject that which is, which is not of you, which does not contribute to unity. So God, teach us, instruct us, lead us. It's in your son's name we pray.